This is a podcast about new crops. You're going to love it. Join us on The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. So it sounds like a couple cycles of recurrent selection has made some progress. Huge, huge. And, that, and I think that we are just at a point where that, that rate of genetic gain per generation is going to really accelerate. Welcome to The Cutting Edge, a podcast in search of new crops for Wisconsin. I'm your co-host, Jerry Clark, with the Division of Extension in, with the University of Wisconsin-Madison, serving as an agricultural agent in Chippewa County. Joining me today as my co-host is Jason Fishbach. Hi, Jerry. Well, we've got a great uh, show lined up today as part of our three-part series on chestnuts. And joining us is Ron Revord and Greg Miller. And first, guys, thanks for joining us today on, uh, I guess, a cold November morning for us. We're down, we were 18 degrees last night. Um, Ron, you want to just introduce yourself and how you're involved with chestnuts? Sure. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm an assistant research professor at the University of Missouri Center for Agroforestry, uh, where they've been doing chestnut research in a variety of ways for upwards of 20 years now. So... I'm stepping into um, my seat as the tree breeder and geneticist, where I'll be working on uh, chestnut as well as a few other nut tree species. And Ron, you came from University of Illinois. Is that where you did your graduate work? Yep. Um, in 2019, I finished up my PhD there, um, working under Sarah Lovell, and in close collaboration with Tom Molnar at Rutgers University uh, and his colleagues with the Hybrid Hazelnut Consortium. Great. And Greg, do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Greg Miller. I'm a chestnut grower in East Central Ohio. Been doing chestnuts my whole life. My business was derived from my dad's nut growing hobby, which got out of control and became a business. I uh, have a PhD from Iowa State in forestry breeding and genetics. So uh, <clears throat> been interested in chestnut breeding really my whole life. Cool. So maybe the first question for you guys, and if um, Greg, you want to take the first one here is uh, kind of give us an overview of chestnuts. I think most of our listening audience will know American chestnut, but that's not what we're talking about when we're growing chestnuts these days, right? We're talking Chinese chestnuts and hybrids. So could you just kind of give us an overview of the different species and, and uh, plant material? Okay. Well, there are at least seven species recognized in Castania. Um, some people recognize more. Essentially all the species will spontaneously hybridize with each other and so there are lots of hybrids you know for that reason because uh, the gene pool then comprises all the seven species which occur in the northern hemisphere all around the world. Mostly for the Midwest we think that the Chinese chestnut is you know, is kind of the anchor species or the main one. It, it is kind of the primordial species. It's in, in China is where chestnut originated. And I sort of think that all the other species are just derivatives of Castanium melissima, the Chinese. Also turns out climate-wise, disease-wise, there's a lot of reasons 
why the Chinese is best uh, for the Midwest because the climate in China um, sort of is closer to North America than, than the other places chestnuts grow. And, and the quality of the nuts is probably the best of all the species. <clears throat> you know, nevertheless, I think there are some characteristics we can bring in from the non-Chinese species that will help. So why not American chestnut? Probably the main reason is uh, blight susceptibility and phytophthora susceptibility. And the nut size is an issue. The Americans are generally too small. Um, you know, they're kind of remembered by people who don't actually have a memory of it as being the best tasting of all the chestnuts and the sweetest. But I don't think they're really much better than Chinese and they might be different and they do have a higher oil content, a little bit different flavor. I, th I think we could use American chestnut maybe to bring in some, some nut quality characteristics, but it's not really essential. And, but the main problem is the disease susceptibility. Ron, do you wanna kind of give us an overview of right now where chestnuts are grown in the US? Where are the kind of production regions if there are? Any right now? Sure. Um, well, there is some production out west. Um, there's um, growers in Michigan as well, uh, and then there's growers throughout the Midwest. You could say all the way from you know Missouri up uh, towards uh, Greg's neck of the woods in Ohio, and extending to a lot of uh, folks up into the Northeast where they're basically trying to establish orchards. But the most, I guess, well-established uh, industries probably be the, um, like the Michigan group is, is well-established. Um, there's a, a, around a cooperative. Um, and then there's now an, Ohio, an Iowa group and a, an Ohio group that, that are established around a cooperative, uh, but those are, maybe groups of growers on the scale of, you know, several dozen. Is that about right, Greg? Yeah, historically there was commercial production in the Southeast, like in Georgia. And there's a big grower in Pennsylvania who pretty much operates by himself from trees planted in the 1960s. There is a really growing interest in kind of New York and, and New England, especially kind of Western Massachusetts, Hudson Valley and in the Finger Lakes region. So, um, and there are people planting in the Southeast. So we have a recover a really broad climatic range, probably broader than any other commercial nut crop. Any idea, say in the Eastern US, how many acres are in commercial production? Say that people are harvesting the nuts and selling them versus just subsistence stuff. I could tell you the number of growers offhand, but not the number of acres. Um, the Midwest and neighboring states is around 500 growers as of the last ag census, so 2017. And it seems based on what we know with uh, like nursery affiliates and, and our seed sales from the Center for Agroforestry that that's increasing quite a bit. Most of those orchards are on the smaller side though, um, you know, maybe 10 or tens of acres. I couldn't tell you offhand how many of those are in of, of bearing age versus non-bearing age. Oh, I was just curious, um, you know, in an earlier podcast, that range was kind of that southern Wisconsin uh, trying to 
move this crop maybe further north. Uh, is the, in your work, Ron, as part of that, or, or Greg, is, is some of that going to be driven on, you know, growing degree days as your breeding program to try to move this, this crop further north or try, try to adapt it to all the growing regions? Um, it just seemed like where we are in northern Wisconsin, we were right on the edge of maybe where it could grow. And then is that part of, you know, your work moving forward is to try to move this crop into uh, areas where it may not be, uh, it's not growing at all. If, if we look at where chestnuts are grown commercially in the world, it's almost exclusively in warmer climates than Wisconsin. Um, and really the kind of the warm or mild temperate zones like in China and in Europe, and in Japan and Korea, and uh, there are chestnut there are chestnuts native and commercial chestnut growers in in China. You know, somewhat north of forty degrees north latitude, but not not much. And so I I think it is pushing the limit for commercial production. Um, the European chestnut, you know, was moved by the Romans all the way up to England, and, and there are even some in Denmark. But commercial production is only south of the Alps. So I, I think chestnuts seem to require a really hot summer, uh, which means maybe the upper Midwest is okay if we can just get the trees through the winter, because uh, they, do, they do like that hot, humid summer. That seems to be important. In the winter hardiness, is that a matter of the, the, the vegetative parts surviving the winter? Is it spring frost? Is it the fall ripening and maturity? Or what's, what's the main limitation on the hardiness? Uh, both, you know, I think spring frost is not a, <clears throat> that's not a Northern thing. People in the Southeast have more problem with spring frost than, than we do. Uh, but the winter hardiness, and you know, I think there's a there's certainly a lot of variation in in the growing season. You know, when when the trees go dormant in the fall, and if they aren't or if they aren't fully dormant when the cold weather hits, like like now, um, mm -hmm. that can cause trouble. So, so 18 I, degrees here this morning for me in mid-November that would be lethal to the trees or cause a lot of damage. Well, there are some trees which it would be lethal to if they haven't lost their leaves yet. Uh, and, and I see this where you look at all the native forest trees and they've lost all their leaves and here you've got these few chestnuts and I'm thinking particular like the Dunstans, they still got green leaves on. And I uh, thought, so, okay, this is not something that should be growing this far north. So I think it is a matter of choosing materials that <clears throat> kind of fit themselves to the growing season, you know, know, know when to go dormant in the fall. And then there does seem to be some, you know, deep winter minimum temperature that they can tolerate even after they're dormant. So there's maybe two things. There's adaptation to the growing season and, and in particular going, going dormant when they need to go dormant because they pretty much got to go dormant before it gets cold. Um, so they have to anticipate what's coming. And that's- and they're not. Say so in Iowa, the, when we interviewed Tom, he might, do I have this right, that they're not dropping their nuts until end of 
September, early October? Correct. Is that, okay, so they got to do that and then go dormant all in that short little window before the cold weather comes, okay. Yeah, and that, that time of nut drop is uh, surprisingly consistent even in, you know, from Florida to Michigan, you know, they might ripen like two, a week or two earlier in Florida, but it's not, it's not like a degree day thing like you might see with vegetables or maybe even some other fruits. It's, I think the nut ripening time, it's probably closely tied to photo period uh, with a, you know, secondary effect of temperature uh, and warm temperatures make them drop quicker than cold temperatures. So uh, it, it does happen, especially in the Midwest. Sometimes they, we get a hard freeze before the nuts have dropped, and that, that can be devastating. Well, uh, we, had, we had 70 degrees last week, but you know, two weeks before that, we had eight inches of snow. So if we could flip that around <laughs> and make sure it comes in the right sequence, we might be all right. Well, <laughs> this is the big problem in the Midwest. Where looking at the averages doesn't tell you the whole story. And, <laughs> And any, any perennial crop has to deal with all those extreme weather events. And, and those, you know, one, one weather event can affect the tree for years. Uh, whereas if you have one weather event that ruins your corn crop, well, that doesn't affect next year's corn crop. Uh, drought is another issue that, you know, chestnuts are fairly drought tolerant, but a severe drought can can hurt the trees and you don't, they don't recover for two or three years. So the, the traits or the requirements for adapting to like a Wisconsin environment are even um, goals for adapting to climates south of you. So the germplasm isn't necessarily even holistically ready to go in, you know, like uh, let's say south of Chicago like the band that would go across from Iowa to Ohio. Some of them are uh, well adapted, many aren't. So still even in that less, let's call it less extreme because it's south um, environment, you're looking to improve adaptability for winter hardiness, the season length like we were talking about. And then you do have the added variable there of the spring frosts like this past year spring frost were a major issue where they had two events that took out initial growth and secondary growth. And there was a lot of crop loss um, from Iowa to Ohio with maybe exception to some of the growers, well, some genotypes, maybe were escapes or they avoided it. Um, and then there's uh, growers up near the Cleveland area where the, the lake maybe uh, tempered the frost just enough where those regions were able to escape it. But just to get an idea of where these like adaption requirements are needed, it's not just in the upper Midwest, it's even just throughout the broader Midwest. So that raises a good question to me is, um, you know, those 500 growers or so that you mentioned, are they still mainly growing seedlings from hybrids or are there, is the cultivar development far enough along that growers are putting in larger blocks of single cultivars or where, where are things at on deployment of some of this germplasm? Single cultivars can maybe be considered in, but, but in a much narrower geography. So like the river hills of Missouri 
where the Center for Agroforestry has tested grafted cultivars over long periods of time, like we're talking multiple decades, where there's very minimal graft failure for given cultivars, maybe it's 10% or so, um, not economically impactful on a commercial scale, like the, the, those areas can kind of be successful. Beyond that, um, it's I think mostly seedling based. And so a lot of it is open pollinated seedlings from particular cultivars. So a lot of half sibling families would be predominantly what's grown. Yeah, just okay. to kind of shed some <clears throat> more light on that, you know, for regions that are not clear, you know, chestnuts, especially Chinese chestnuts, suffer a lot of graft failure and even delayed graft failure where you can have a successful graft that dies. <clears throat> or sometimes you get trees that survive, but the graft union is so poor that nut size goes down and growth rate goes down and disease susceptibility goes up. We don't know why chestnuts are difficult to graft, but they are. <clears throat> and as Ron sort of alluded to, anytime the tree is exposed to any kind of stress, and usually water stress or cold stress, that tends to exacerbate the graft failure. So if you've got trees that are in a really good environment, well irrigated, uh, and don't, don't ever go through stress periods, they're more likely to survive. But, but I think as I look at why is there not a chestnut industry, and I think it's always hard to figure out a reason why something didn't happen, <clears throat> but I think Certainly for chestnuts, one of the main contributors is the failure of, <clears throat> the failure of grafted trees. You know, so why, why grafting versus tissue culture or layering? Why is that uh, been those, the methods, those methods haven't done any better. In fact, we, uh, we tried rooting cuttings thinking, okay, if you get rid of the graft union, we'd solve the problem. But a uh, short version of that, we stuck 10,000 cuttings, planted 100 trees in the field, and we got like 10 of them left uh, before, I, before I abandoned that. But it's, it seemed that the grafted, I mean, the rooted cuttings fared no better than the grafted trees. And there seemed to be something about the joint, the, the juncture between the adventitious roots and the tree was just as bad as a graft union. In other words, there's something magic about that root collar area of a chestnut tree that you don't get when you root a cutting or, or start a tree from tissue culture. Um, you know, I guess one of, one of my hopes is uh, somatic embryogenesis as a way to sort of produce clonal seedlings, uh, but that technology is not, not developed well enough that we can uh, propagate adult trees from, you know, somatic embryogenesis. So if, if there were a way to clonally propagate chestnuts, that would be a game changer. But right now we're using seedlings, uh, mainly because that's what works the best. And we just put up with the genetic variation that we have in a seedling orchard. Uh, but but it's it's becoming pretty clear that in terms of growth rate and production, the seedlings will outperform grafted trees substantially. So are you just starting out with higher planting densities and then weeding out the poor performing seedlings? Is that one strategy that is, that's being used? Yeah, that, that, 
that's an important component of the system is to uh, yeah, plant at a higher density than you want to end up with and then remove the poorer performers as the, as the trees come into production. And there also is from an economic standpoint, you get, you get more production early by having more trees per acre. And, and so there is, you don't, you know, in other words, chestnuts may, uh, I think at a spacing of 40 by 40, they can easily fill that space. They could even get bigger than that, but you don't want to start out your planting at 40 by 40. It just takes way too long to get enough production per acre. So I think even if we could, uh, you know, produce clonal uh, trees, we probably want to start out at a higher density and then thin the trees as they, as they get bigger. Uh, hey, Ron, um, I'm from a breeding standpoint, do you feel like, well, Greg, too, because you've been at this for a while, do you feel like you have a diverse enough breeding pool to start with here in the Midwest, or do we need more genetics from China? Do we need more hybridization to develop that pool, or, or is there enough potential in the existing germplasm to just start <coughs> selecting? There's unique variation that could definitely be added to our pool, probably focusing towards more northern climates in, in China. Um, but to your question was to get started. I think that we definitely have uh, requisite diversity uh, in high quality selections or named cultivars to start a breeding program. Um, and I guess I'll caveat that by saying uh, in many senses that was already started uh, 20 years or so ago. Um, so when, so the Center for Agroforestry in partnership with Greg and, and Tom Wall have basically sent this or made the same pool of open pollinated seed from the cultivars in the Hark repository available to growers. And so that basically started the cycle of pre-breeding by sending that material. It was a nice mixture of diversity but high quality economic traits out to growers across a wide geography and, and they've been doing it year after year. You know, it's continuing this year. We sent out uh, thousands of pounds of seed to almost a hundred growers, some new, some old this year. Oh. Mm -hmm. uh, so what that allows, you know, af after two decades, you build up a substantial pool of open pollinated uh, sibling families in many different environments. Um, and that's a great basis uh, for, for pre-breeding, basically selecting those that appear well in these respective environments um, with maybe the leading parameter or descriptor for doing well, you know, in air quotes, um, being like stability in those environments. Um, so not just, you know, well, I guess there's two aspects to stability, right? There's like the climate variables that we were talking about and, you know, is it adapted to the stressor, like the main stressors? <clears throat> Secondarily to that is, you know, is it bearing the same amount year to year? So it's interannual stability, which can be one of two things, right? It could be just like alternate bearing, which might have genetic components to it or different parameters, um, but it could just be a function of like being locally adapted to, to that specific area. So I, I think to add to that, <clears throat> you know, the history of improvement goes back 
farther than farther than a couple decades. Um, in fact, when the chestnut blight kind of ravaged the American chestnut, USDA imported a lot of Chinese germplasm, which was then like planted out with the idea mainly we would have a species to replace American chestnuts, but they were broadly planted. The USDA distributed them to anybody who wanted. This inadvertently got a lot of germplasm introduced and distributed. And from some of those plantings, you know, people said, oh, this does well here. Oh, this has potential as a nut crop. Um, and I think if we look at the genetic diversity in chestnuts compared to other fruit and nut crops, I think the, the genetic base or the gene pool is huge. Um, much bigger for much bigger for castania than for a lot of other tree crops that we grow. Uh, so in, you know, I always say that you know, the best thing about chestnut breeding is we got a broad genetic base. And the worst thing about chestnut breeding is we got a broad genetic base. Yeah, right, right. So it, <clears throat> it's a challenge to kind of evaluate and look through all the material that's available. Um, but on the other hand, I think what we are now finding, even, even when we try to choose materials, you know, for a specific area, like, like in Missouri, uh, there's, a, there's a still a lot of variation that does well. So we, we have a long way to go and a lot of potential for improvement. Um, it's kind of just a matter of uh, being able to handle the, you know, the, the huge genetic base that's available and how, how to evaluate that. Uh, and that's kind of one of the, um, one of the beautiful things about the breeding program that Ron has started is that kind of the genetic base is so big, we couldn't handle that in one institution, but if we can distribute the evaluation, uh, you know, across hundreds or maybe even thousands of growers and have hundreds of thousands or maybe even millions of trees, uh, under evaluation, that that's something that's been kind of unprecedented in in fruit crop breeding. Well, that's a good segue to you, Ron. Um, can you tell us about your breeding program? I think I've read that you've got access to that Missouri clonal planting that's been there since what 1996 or something. Um, so, yep. what else? What else are you doing? What's what's a day in the life of a chestnut breeder looking like? Well, I'll uh, I'll give you the broad strokes. Of how we're trying to build from past efforts to get that open pollinated seed out to growers, like we talked about before. So um, we rewarded um, a USDA grant in the spring to work with growers that have you know, mature seedlings that were derived from our um, repository to evaluate those. So um, across, about 20 different farms will evaluate, uh, we just finished the first year of this, um, like 400 to 700 trees. Um, we'll probably add a few more next year. Uh, unfortunately, we had that spring frost like I had mentioned earlier, so, so a lot of trees didn't have nuts on them this year. Um, but point being, we'll evaluate those to basically select uh, individuals that seem to be the best offspring in their respective environments and develop core collections to kind of conserve those. Uh, and they can and what, be used. what do you mean by best? What, what traits in particular are you measuring? 
on those? There's a whole host of traits, um, including um, DNA markers. So genetic diversity at neutral loci, um, we're reconstructing pedigree with those uh, same, same markers. Um, so even though they're open pollinated, more often than not, we should be able to find out who the male parent was. Um, and then there's a host of economic traits related to nut and kernel quality and the relative variation within a, a given tree. Um, let's see here, architectural traits and then a whole host of morphologies too. Altogether, there's probably, uh, say somewhere between 20 and 30 uh, phenotypes within those categories. Um, a lot of work. Yeah, it is. Um, but are there maybe like the top three traits that you'd say the industry is interested in? Nut size is probably a, a leading trait. Um, and then following that would be like aspects of kernel quality. Um, so, so color, texture, sensory aspects. Um, we'll also look at storage in subsequent years because there's a storage mold issue with chestnut being more of a starchy crop rather than an oily crop. Um, actually, this past weekend, we just did our first um, pass through a uh, sensory tasting uh, with around 30 cultivars from the Hark collection so that we could work towards building a lexicon. The material on farm now is great from a pre-breeding perspective. Very diverse germplasm pool. We're trying to basically identify those best individuals that can serve as next generation's parents. Um, so we'll then kind of recreate the wheel of developing new offspring with those parents and dissem disseminating them back out on farm so that they, those, those offspring can be the next generation of seedlings that compose orchards uh, rather than just continuing to use the same seedling sources. Um, and we might try to, instead of it being just open pollinated seedling, wide diversity, you know, in every geography, we'll try to um, take it from more of a pre-breeding phase to a breeding phase where we're being a little bit more targeted with parent selection based on what we've learned um, over the last 20 years on what cultivars seem to be doing better where um, and uh, integrate control crosses into that scheme. So instead of open pollinated seedlings being planted out could be full siblings. Yeah, I was just curious um, with some of the traits, is oil, protein, any of that being looked at? Uh, you know, there's a big interest now in essential oils and all this kind of uh, for, for nutraceuticals or uh, you know, food-based products, whatever it is, it seems like oil is, is trendy. Is that something that's being looked at or some of the uses, alternative uses for the chestnut? We have interest in that and it fits within the theme of like uh, nutrient composition characterization that the Center for Agroforestry is trying to build out, but we won't be able to do that as a part of this grant, maybe the next one. Right. Some of those compositions play well into learning more about the sensory experience too. I think Greg was alluding to that a bit earlier when describing the American chestnut <clears throat> composition does change from species to species a bit. Yeah, chestnuts are only one or 2% oil and maybe Americans go up to 4%. So we're not talking about an oil crop. Right. Uh, 
But the little bit of fat that is there, you know, that does really impact the flavor and the sensory experience in eating it. But I don't think um, it's mainly a starch crop. Um, they're 80% starch on a dry weight basis. And, and so I think, <clears throat> I think the oil content mainly impacts the flavor. So are you looking at um, deploying more replicated yield blocks of your top individuals or is that down the road still? Um, so they, they've done, we've done cultivar trials at Hark um, with uh, maybe like five grafted replicates but we might replicate that in some other areas, but it's more opportunistic based on what new growers want to do. So we do have a few like new participants um, for our participatory breeding program that have interest in not just planting open pollinated seedlings or, or full SIP or control crosses, um, but maybe grafted plants too. And they're in more Southern climates where there's a, at least a good expectation that sh they should survive long-term. We, we won't have delayed graft failure. One, um, of, one of the big issues is that the performance of, a, of a, you know, the graft, the gramets is so much different than the performance of the ortet that it, it doesn't make any sense to make a, graft, a grafted trial because those grafts do not perform like the seedlings do. Is that because of a rootstock so, effect or just something about that graft? Something about the graft. Uh, well, uh, certainly, uh, uh, I think there are th such things as rootstock effects, but it's not, it's not just the rootstock. There are some grafts that perform as well as, <clears throat> as, well as the ortet. In other words, I've got like a whole grafted row of one cultivar, and, and everyone who's grafted trees has this experience. It's amazing if you put out 20 or 50 trees in a row of one cultivar, how much variation there is from tree to tree. That variation is at least as great as the variation amongst seedlings. And so, uh, you know, the idea, and in fact, that's what I started out was we need to do some trials. Uh, but the reason there haven't been trials is because of that, uh, it's not just graph failure, it's sort of a non-uniformity and, and poor growth of grafted trees. You know, it's funny listening to this sounds, there's a lot of parallels with the hazelnut world right now because it's so hard to graft or to, um, to propagate anything with American heritage and American hazelnut in the parentage. And it's almost to the point where you want to throw in the towel on vegetative propagation and just stick with seedlings and just deal with the variability or, you know, like you said, plant higher densities and weed out, you know, the garbage. But I don't know, any thoughts on that? Is I'm not, I'm listening to you guys. I'm not feeling real optimistic about uh, clonal varieties anytime soon or even as a- Well, I think one of the, one of the encouraging aspects is I've, um, I've been reading like old annual reports from the Northern Nut Growers. And there was a period from the 1930s, and that's kind of when <clears throat> when Chinese chestnuts were introduced on a large scale, up through the 1960s, when you read about the performance of trees, and 
they basically did really poorly. Um, and there were, there were a, just a handful of, of selected cultivars that people were grafting and they were <clears throat> at that time advocating grafted trees because the seedlings did so poorly. And, and I, you know, my dad planted trees in the 19, late 1950s and 1960s. Most of those trees were just absolutely worthless from a commercial standpoint. But kind of since then, you know, maybe beginning kind of from the 1970s to the 1990s, there weren't a lot of us planting chestnuts, but those who were, were kind of zeroing in on those that did the best. And I think kind of from the 1990s on, uh, you know, we have, we, the, the people who are growing chestnuts have found, oh, here's, here's material that works well. We finally crossed a threshold where we can plant seedling trees that produce commercially viable crops. Whereas before, before somewhere in the 1980s or 1990s, what seedling trees that were performed so poorly, there was no commercial potential. So, so it is a matter of kind of filtering out what will what is commercially viable and and there you know there was a time when most chestnut seedlings performed really poorly and and i get i kind of bristle every time i hear somebody say well i planted chinese seedlings and they performed thus and so well that's a that does you know you didn't say which seedlings you planted and it makes right. a big difference yeah so it sounds like a couple cycles of recurrent selection is made some progress. Huge, huge. Yeah. Okay. And that, and I think that we are just at a point where that, that rate of genetic gain per generation is going to really accelerate. In other mm -hmm. words, the best is yet to come. Yeah. Gotcha. So I guess there's one thing that I was going to add. And that's that I, I don't really see the material as something that I would recommend to growers as like a, uh, Adoption is like a clonal, as clonal material. I view the cultivar collection we have at Hark, you know, about say up to seventy cultivars as breeding parents, most more so. So to me, it's not really even a question of adopt seedlings versus grafted cultivars. It's we're, we're still in this, we're still at this phase of genetic improvement, like Greg is mentioning, um, where it's really not even a question it's just seedlings gotcha so what happened with michigan with the european um hybrids that there was colossal at some point that was touted i think as kind of the end-all be-all but that's gone away or, or what's happening in michigan these days because it's on a little different track than the midwest right it's more of a european hazelnut or um chestnut focus they still are producing a lot of colossal um Every year they make up some excuse to cover the, you know, the problems with Colossal. I mean, it's got a long list of defects. Um, and, and I think it's got little future. There is some, some of the growers there are switching to other Euro-Japanese um, cultivars. And it does seem that I think, especially in Northern Michigan and especially in the fruit belt where they're trying to grow chestnuts, I think the summers are too cool and, and the Chinese chestnuts don't do as well under those, you know, 
places that are good to grow cherries are not necessarily good to grow chestnuts. Um, <clears throat> so, I, you know, and if you look at kind of the climatic adaptation of the various species, those that do grow in more cooler maritime climates are the European and Japanese because they come from maritime climates. Uh, but those that are in the, the Chinese chestnut seem to require that really hot, long summer, which, um, <clears throat> which I think is not what most of the fruit belt in Michigan has. You know, you get into central Wisconsin, you might actually it's hotter than, than in, in Michigan. You know, certainly Michigan does not have adequate genetic material, and, and the farther north you go. Uh, I would say the more need there is for a breeding program there because there's less material that's adapted. Um, you know, <clears throat> we always joke, I think I'm as far north as you can grow chestnuts and Bob Staley, who's two hours north of me and part of our co-op, you know, he thinks he's at the northern limit of where you can grow chestnuts. So, so as we keep pushing farther and farther north into shorter growing seasons and colder winters, it starts to narrow down, uh, you know, the genetic materials that are available. There's a big task yet to discover, you know, what will do best in Wisconsin, what will do best in Michigan, uh, and how, and basically if, if anything does well somewhere, how far can we move it and have it still do well? These are unanswered questions that I think Part, partly what we can do with the participatory breeding program where we got growers in a lot of different climates. And a lot of them have planted, uh, planted you know, the same families, the same genetic material. So we will discover, you know, well, do the offspring of Ching do well in Wisconsin or do they do well in Alabama or, or uh, you know, questions like that. The uh, Center for Agroforestry has got a really nice publication about chestnuts and it lists nurseries that are available. Um, are nurseries primarily just selling half siblings they've collected from say their best plant or are they, uh, is anyone offering full sibling families? Um, are people offering cultivars? Where, where is the nursery? side of things at or how do people, what's the best way for folks to get plants these days? So half sibling families are sent from our program um, to several nurseries in, including Greg's, uh, Tom Wall at Redfern Farm and Forest Keeling um, a little north of St. Louis. I'm not sure if, if Greg or Tom provide half sibling material to a second tier of nurseries, but I don't think so. Um, and then starting in, make sure I get this, this right, uh, 2021, so yeah, next year, we'll have full sibling material, but obviously that'll be of lower, at a lower supply than the open pollinated material. Um, and most of next year's is already designated for certain participants, um, but hopefully we'll be increasing the ability to produce full sibs up to, I guess, a, a goal of around 10,000 a year um, from then on. 
so it's always good to kind of be proactive and reach out if full sibs are of interest. So we, we've already started making a, a short list of participants interested in full sibs for uh, 2022. Uh, I'm not sure you can get full sib material anywhere else, or it's really only relevant because we're the nature of this program being centered around genetic improvement. I don't believe other nurseries would really be offering full sib material. I think one of the one of the problems is that until we do some progeny testing and can identify trees with good specific combining ability, you know, the advantage of full sib, which is expensive, versus you know open pollinated or half sib, which is relatively cheap, um, and and just just calling it half sib, you know. Every mother tree that you collect seed from has is surrounded by the potential fathers, and it makes a difference what those are. Mm -hmm. And so, if you're in a situation like Hark, where all the potential fathers are good cultivars, then I'm not sure that you would gain much from making a cross between two particular parents versus one parent and, and an array of other good parents. You know, until we know that these, you know, mother A and father B make better offspring than mother A and father C. But, you know, so at this point, uh, in other words, I, I get seed from Hark be, simply because there the, you know, every mother tree is surrounded by other grafted trees who, you know, the potential fathers are one, all good ones, and two, genetically different or at least presumed different from the mother. Now that would contrast, you know, there's a couple of the orchets, you know, of the clones at Hark that I have in my orchard. And I could collect seed from the orchet of Peach or Gideon or some of the other good, good parents, but they're surrounded by mediocre trees that are probably relatives. So they're surrounded by their siblings. So there we would have an inbreeding problem uh, we would also have uh, the fact that, you know, the potential fathers are just not quite as good as the potential fathers at heart. So, so I think there are certainly ways to make open pollinated half sib families better. Um, and ultimately, if we found two good, really, two really good parents, we could make a biclonal orchard and just collect open pollinated seed and then know no, no, both parents. The problem is the time that would take yeah, right. decades. And right, by the time right. we picked out those two parents, some of their offspring might be way better parents than those original parents were anyway. And, and so yeah. we're always, you know, fighting this lag of once we identify good parents, we identify those with their good offspring. Now we should use those good offspring as the parents instead of going back to the original ones in order, in order to make the best gains. So we're always going to be kind of guessing um, as to who the, who the best parents are. Uh, but I, I think at this point with, with the potential for the rapid gains, um, just picking out good parents who are not related to each other or who are not very closely related to each other uh, and making crosses between them is a, uh, it's, it, it works. Um, 
So if a grower wants to get involved, is there a website they should go to? Do they work through a local grower cluster or how, how do they get involved to, to be part of this process? Uh, at this point, they can get in contact with, with me or one of my lab members. So we'll be developing a lot of informational material uh, this winter prior to the start of the next growing season. So overviews of the program, you know, kind of uh, the broad strokes on like the biology and genetics of what we're doing and why it's important for the program to be decentralized and not just be held at an institute. Um, the benefits of it being participatory, so like an exchange of information between like an institutional program like our lab and and the knowledge of growers. I mean, the depth of knowledge that you find in growers that have been like Greg, for example, or, or even growers that have been in doing it for five, 10 years is incredible. Um, especially how intimately they know that they're given orchards and like their, their favorite uh, trees or, or their, their local markets and how that information could get fed back into the program. Um, Without digressing too much more on those benefits, we'll basically have a lot of informational material to communicate that. Um, and other resources are we're, we're developing too. So we'll add um, a web page to the soon to be coming new Center for Agroforestry website. Um, and then we also have um, a germplasm management database uh, that we'll have that'll be available for a few days away from purchasing. It's, uh, it's another one of those COVID era obstacles, but we're like six months into trying to get this uh, germplasm database set up to manage all this on-farm material and right. uh, any day now. So anyhow. So I, maybe let's, oh, go ahead, Greg. I was gonna say, I, I know from, you know, from my customer base and from the people I interact with, there are a lot of people who are really, they're saying, how can I participate in this program? So there's a lot of enthusiasm among growers to get involved. And a lot of these growers that I'm talking to are in the Northeast and in the Southeast, kind of out of the, out of the radius range of, uh, you know, the Missouri people to drive in a day. So, so they're not really working with them, but, uh, there's a tremendous amount of enthusiasm among growers to uh, to move forward with this, and I'm uh, I'm excited about that. Yeah, right. So that, that's a really good point to bring up, if you don't mind, Jason. Um, so we've gone and we plan to travel and have to uh, these on-farm locations that are kind of in the in the Midwest, so Iowa over to Ohio, uh, maybe like Kentucky to Missouri, that box, uh, and and do a lot of the on-farm evaluations. We like ourselves, our lab. Um, if you're outside of that range, it doesn't mean that you can't engage and participate in the, the network. Um, we could provide sort of the, the resource support, the, the what and the how, so that efforts, you know, in the Northeast or the Southeast are coordinated and, and done in a similar fashion to what we're doing on farm, my lab. Uh, that way the efforts are more directly comparable um, or we could tap into a broader um, diversity, a broader gene pool um, that could really probably benefit the whole. Um. Right. Uh, so my last question, and Jerry, I don't know if you've got a, a final one too, but my last question is, you know, talking to Tom Wall and, and uh, our previous guest, Roger Smith, it, it's, you know, the markets are there, 
growers plant these seedlings and go because you can make money off these plantings right now. Uh, do you share their enthusiasm or are you a little bit more cautious? We sold out in less than 24 hours. It, and that's the, that's the experience of every grower that I know is that they, they can't, they could probably sell many times their own production just, and, and it's like once, once people find out that you have chestnuts, they about break your door down. We had, mm -hmm. we had people drive for hours, just showed up and they wanted to pick their own chestnuts. We never invited them. <clears throat> we didn't know they were coming. Um, right. It's like, I, you know, your website says you were sold out. I just wanted to come pick some. <laughs> so it, it's kind of unusual to have a problem like that, that we just don't have enough production to satisfy the demand. And, and it's interesting to me, even though we are, you know, China is the world's leading producer and they are exporting more and more to the US, but all my Chinese customers do not want to buy those chestnuts from China. They want to buy chestnuts from, that are produced in America because they, they trust them more. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm somewhat concerned about, you know, our market getting flooded with cheap chestnuts imported from China. But so far, my customers are willing to pay two or three times as much to buy something that was produced locally. Yeah, right. Fresher, and especially chestnuts, that matters, right? Big time. Uh, yeah, there, there, there's no produce item that's presented to consumers in worse condition than chestnuts are in a lot of supermarkets. Yeah, right, right. Jerry, any last questions? No, I just uh, make a comment. I think, you know, a, a, a activity like this where you've got the university connecting with, with growers and trying to move this crop in, an, in a forward where more people can grow it, uh, the market's there. We usually don't see that in agriculture very often where we, we, we usually flood a market and here's a market that's ready to go and we just got to get the word out that here's an opportunity and, and let's look forward. We've got people like Ron and, and Greg to, to help move it forward. They're willing to share that information and uh, it's really appreciated. Well, great guys. Thanks for your time this morning. Thanks a lot. It was nice to, to chat with you guys. Brought to you by the University of Wisconsin-Madison Division of Extension.